Okay, on the 27th of February, I think I'm right in saying, of this year, so seven months ago, there or thereabouts, um, we as a church began a new sermon series uh, on, the, on the book of Genesis. We began a sermon series way back then uh, on the latter chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, since then, and I try to do the maths, so since then through about 17 or 18 sermons, what we've done is we have traced the life of Joseph. So we have followed his ups and downs, or his downs and ups, I suppose, haven't we? Uh, we've followed the peaks and the troughs of his, uh, of his life. And we have noted all the way along this, the grace, and the providence, and the goodness of God. Well, as we start today, I really want to test your, your, your memory and see if it's working. Uh, can you recall, if you were here, some of you can get off with us because you weren't here, uh, but can you recall, if you were here, the purpose we stated in choosing this section of the Bible? If you think back to the end of February, can you remember what we said? We said it was to clearly see Jesus, wasn't it? Do you remember the quote? I'll give you it again. I quoted somebody who said that and I like this quote, and hence the reason that I've repeated about four times in the sermon series, that though all of the Old Testament whispers Jesus' name, remember the end of it? Though all of the Old Testament whispers Jesus' name, some of the Old Testament shouts that name out loud. And that's why we went to this story, the story of Joseph. Why? Because we wanted to be pointed from this favored son, this beloved son, hated and despised, yet then exalted and reigning. We wanted to be pointed from this beloved son to the Lord Jesus Christ, our exalted reigning Lord. Uh, well, this morning, okay, we end our sermon series. And as we do that today, uh, predictably, God in Genesis chapter 50, he furnishes us uh, with the most uh, suitable and fitting uh, conclusion. Because as we study this chapter of Scripture, as we look at what are Joseph's final moments on earth, what we see is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are pointed here to three aspects of Jesus' life and Jesus' work. And these are three aspects that I really sincerely hope and pray will deepen Christian assurance. If there is a word for a day, it's that. Assurance. We'll see things here that should deepen Christian assurance. So, <clears throat> with these things said, and for the last time in a wee while, uh, can I invite you to turn back in your Bibles uh, to the latter chapters of Genesis. In fact, the last chapter of Genesis. If you've got a copy of the Bible, look please to Genesis chapter 50, from verse 15. And let's consider, first of all, or let's notice, first of all, assurance of genuine forgiveness the first thing we see here. So it's assurance, but it's assurance of genuine forgiveness. Genuine, real forgiveness. Okay. Right. Now, if we begin by 
uh, looking in the rearview mirror. If we begin by looking back, uh, what do we see? We look back the way uh, we see a death, don't we? Last time we see this death of uh, Joseph's father of the patriarch Jacob. If you were here last week, come on, you must remember that scarily uh, fitting uh, portion of Scripture, that scarily relevant portion of Scripture, where at a time where we're dealing with the queen's death, where does God bring us? But God brings us to a state funeral uh, last week, where what happens with Joseph? Joseph and his brothers, they take his father, and they take him up to Canaan to be buried before Joseph and his brothers return to Egypt. You remember the state funeral, I'm sure. That's in the rearview mirror. But if we look ahead, or rather, if we look down at the page, what I think we see in this section immediately is something of a new type of tension that begins to emerge. And I think it's really important that we all see it together. So if you've got scripture there, have a look at verse 15. I wonder if we can project verse 15 as well. I'll read it. It's important that we get it. So they've taken their father up and they've come back down. And then, now listen, when, when Joseph's brothers they saw that their father was dead. So when they, it's the idea of when they have come to terms with their father's death, what happens? They said, oh, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Did you see what's happening here? Do you see what's going on? Like the brothers at this point, they are beginning to doubt. Like they know, don't they, that the way that they have treated Joseph previously, whether you know, hating him, selling him for a few pieces of silver. Like the brothers know this was awful. You know, they in this very section of scripture, they refer to that as evil as sin and as wickedness. And so can you see their process of thought here? They're now thinking, "Uh uh-oh, with dad gone, what's going to happen here? With dad gone, is Joseph going to, is he going to seek vengeance upon us now? Do do you see? Okay, okay, fair enough. There was that, that wonderful moment, wasn't there, like a few chapters ago? I think we all know it, that beautiful moment where Joseph reveals his identity to them. And there's this glorious, beautiful reconciliation. But do you know how long ago that was? That was 17 years ago. And so you can see the brothers... And they're wondering, well, well, wait a minute, wait, what's what's going on here? Now, with with dad gone, is that reconciliation, is it, does it still happen? Is it still there? Is there instead new hostility? What are they wondering? They're wondering, are we forgiven after all? Sometimes, you know, sometimes as we uh, work our way through portions of Scripture. I honestly think, you know, we just have to marvel <laughs> at the goodness of our God. And I, uh, I think today, right now, is, is one of those occasions. Maybe you see why, do you? Uh, today, right now, from Genesis 50, as St. Peter's, for us, 
God is helping us to deal with one of the most common and significant struggles in the Christian life. Right now, here, God's helping us with that. What is that struggle? I think you know, don't you? It's our tendency to lack assurance. Our tendency to, to, to doubt our, uh, our standing before God, our, our tendency to doubt the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. You, you, you know this. You know how it works, don't you? Like maybe it was uh, 17 years ago that you were reconciled to God, or maybe it was seven months ago, or 70 years ago. But as a Christian, we can look back to times where from previously it was hidden. We can look back to times where, oh, yes, the identity of the beloved son was revealed to us. Can you remember the the time where God brought us to himself, a time where we were reconciled and we were saved but what happens in the Christian life time and time again? Oh, this happens, doesn't it? That we begin to doubt. And you know, it's the, it's the seriousness of our sin sometimes, and it's the regularity of our sin, and it begins to weigh upon us, and we end up thinking like this. We find ourselves thinking, do, 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 I believe? Is my reconciliation with God is that real? Is it sure? We think exactly like this. Are we forgiven? Am I forgiven after all? Well, if this morning, if you think like that, if the Christian friends, if the, the clouds of doubt are appearing on the horizon, what you have to know is here is the way that Joseph responds to his brothers. They're coming to him, doubting. How does he respond? Can we look at verse 17? Let's put it together. How does he respond to them? So what do they do? They they pass on their father's desire that there would be forgiveness. And then the brothers, you can see them, they're pleading to be forgiven. And what does he do? Do you see? Look at the end of it, verse 17. What does he do? Do you see? He cries. He he weeps before them. So I'm asking you, why does he do that? Why is he in floods of tears here? Do, Do you see the answer? Is it not the immense love that he has for those men? That's it, isn't it? Come on, that's it. Like, he breaks down because it quite simply breaks his heart that these brothers just don't appreciate the extent of their forgiveness. And they don't appreciate just how much it is that he loves them. And so if you've come through the doors of St. Peter's and it's been tough for you spiritually, and if you are doubting, I need you to see the heart of your God in that. I'm going to read you something. You might know it, but boy, is it helpful. So this is taken from a book called Communion with God. Okay, so it's an old book. We're talking 17th century. Okay, but listen and listen and get the relevance of it. The writer says this. Now think about Joseph's tears. Now listen. The greatest sorrow and burden that you can lay on God the Father, the greatest unkindness 
that you can do to God is not to believe that he loves you. The greatest unkindness you can do to God is not to believe that he loves you. Did you see the relevance of this? God so loves the world, we say. God so loves you that he gave his only son. That son, God the son, so loves you, Christian friends, that he didn't just go to the cross, he went willingly to the cross out of the love that he has for you. So do you see it? If you have come to Christ at any stage of your life, repented and believe in Jesus, listen to what I'm going to say to you. You are forgiven. It is quite as simple as that. If you have come at Christ, the reconciliation that you have with God, it is both real and it is eternal. Isn't that beautiful? What does that mean? That means that all of the sin that you have ever committed, wait, gets better, and all of the sin that you are committing just now, wait, gets better, and all of the sin that you will ever commit, all of it, it has already received its due penalty at the cross at Golgotha. Do you see where you are now in Christ? You stand cleansed. It's all gone. Do you see? All of it. You are forgiven. You are at peace with this God of love and this God of of justice. So what do we do as we turn to Genesis 50? We don't follow the brothers, I don't think, do we? Instead, we embrace the love that God has for us and we embrace the truth of the gospel. Wait, what, what is it? Come on, you know it. Listen. Now listen. If we confess our sins, it'll trip off the tongue. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from some and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want you to understand and to grasp that the good news of the gospel is not too good to be true. If we have come to Jesus Christ, if you have come to Jesus Christ, you stand today and always forgiven. You are forgiven before God. So assurance of genuine forgiveness. Second thing that we see here, assurance of divine purpose. You got it? Assurance of divine purpose. I don't know what it is with a sermon and uh, famous verses of the Bible. I don't know what it is with this sermon, this sermon and memory verses. I've already had John 3.16. For God so loved the world, already had 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins and, and so forth. And then as we carry on in the section, what happens? But we strike gold, don't we? And we hit another uh, famous verse, memory verse. I'm pretty sure you know what I'm talking about. But if not, if we could look at verse 20, have a look at verse 20. I think if you've been brought up in the life of the church, you, you know this verse I've referenced this 
uh, throughout the sermon series. It's one of those verses we teach children to memorize, some of us. Some of you know it by memory, do you? Yeah, I'm sure you do. Can I read it to you? So Joseph, so the brothers, there's all this doubt. And, and as, as part of explaining his standing to them, what does Joseph say? Do you see it? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Do we know that verse? We know that verse, don't we? It's a famous verse of scripture. What is it? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, that's an incredibly well-known verse. I think that there are with memory verses and well-known verses of scripture, I think there's, do you know, I think there's a couple of inherent dangers with these things. Um, yeah, first of all is this. Uh, I think the danger is that we can rattle off memory verses sometimes without really wrestling with what they mean. Oh, I'm sure that's not just me, is it? But sometimes the memory verse, our well-known verse, we just rattle it off and we don't analyze and think, I do not want us to do that right here. So what does this mean? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What does it mean? I think you know what it means. This is one of the clearest statements in all of the Bible about the sheer uncontested sovereignty of our God, isn't it? So the Bible elsewhere will, will tell us that there is only one true and living God, right? And who is he? The Bible will tell us that God is the king of kings. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. But are we not learning even more here? Are we not learning that such is the sheer sovereignty of God? Now, listen, such is the sovereignty that God is constantly overruling the evil intentions and actions of men in order to bring about good from that. Isn't that something? Such is the sovereignty. God is constantly active, constantly overruling all of this evil in the world, all of these evil intentions, and God is behind the scenes bringing about, good, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Like even from the human perspective, even when it seems utterly impossible that that could happen, you know, when you know it, instances when man's wickedness seems just rampant and out of control, even when it seems like that, it's not. God is active behind the, the scenes, ensuring that in each and every circumstance, every single time, good will be brought out of evil. And, and I'm not sure it's thought about enough, but I think the location of this famous verse is, is worthy of note. Now, do you see what I mean? Where are we? We are right at the end of the book of Genesis, aren't we? Come on. Think about what God is doing here. Now, think about bookends or brackets for, for, for a moment. How does the book of Genesis begin? You know, we know we get through the first couple of chapters and then bang, we hit the fall 
And I know I'm not alone when I say that the fall raises questions, doesn't it? Lots of pastoral questions. Probably the Sunday school teachers are getting some of those difficult questions as I speak to you, but it's not just the kids, is it? And it's not just young people, it's not just students, it's all of us in the Christian life. Questions about the fall. Why does God create the world with a capacity for suffering? Capacity for sin. See that serpent? Why was the serpent even allowed in the garden? Why, why was the serpent's head not crushed? Then in there, in the garden. Do you see all of these questions at the beginning of Genesis and how does he end the book? He ends it with this glorious truth, doesn't he? That that God is a God who takes the evil intentions of man for good, that no matter what the evil is, no matter how extreme it is in our lives and across the world, God is a God who is active. He gives us this principle at the end of Genesis that we might look to him in trust. He's a God who takes evil and uses it for the glory of his own name. But, I said, two inherent dangers with memory verses, didn't I? So we rattle them off sometimes without thinking through them clearly. Here's a second danger with all of our memory verses and well-known verses of Scripture. What we do, what I do often, is I pluck them out of context. Do you do that with a memory verse or a well-known verse? You just take it out of its context um, thinking back to seminary, you know, wh- whenever it was a good while ago now, um, my New Testament professor used to say this a lot. He's no longer there, but uh, he, he is he's still alive. He's just not in the, in the seminary. Um, but he used to say this a lot, that there's a danger of taking well-known verses and taking them out of context. He used to use his mother he did it in a respectful way, but he used his, his mother as a, an example of this. Uh, so my professor was brought up in the islands of Scotland. He was uh, brought up in the, the Isle of Lewis. And uh, he used to say, my mum, <laughs> my mum knew her Bible. You know, I think especially when he was in trouble, he would get a, a, a verse or two. But she knew scripture. She had verses on the tip of her tongue. But what he used to say about her is that there was an issue, there was a problem, that she could recite phrases, but she didn't really know where they were from in the Bible, do you see? So she was able to recite some verses, but sometimes they were out of context and in the wrong situation, do do you see? Used incorrectly, she was not quite sure of what some of them meant, and I don't want us to be like this. So do you notice with verse 20 that verse 20 doesn't end where so many people think verse 20 ends? Would you look at it with me again? So as for you, you meant evil against me, Joseph says, but God meant it for good ah, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now think about it for a second with me. You can see, can't you? Everybody can see that Joseph is talking about his own life, isn't he? Isn't he? In fact, isn't there a principle here? 
that in Joseph's life, what God has done, follow me on it, what God has done in Joseph's life is he's taken suffering, the suffering of one man, Joseph, and God has used it to bring deliverance in this famine to multitudes of people. The suffering of one man to bring deliverance to multitudes and multitudes of people. Now, now, I've got a question here, though, with this. Who exactly are the many that he mentions? Do you, do you notice it? So he says, God uses evil for good, doesn't he? To ensure that many in this famine were kept alive. Come on, if you've been here for the sermon series, who are the many that were kept alive? It's not, it's not just Joseph's family, is it? Come on, you know the story? It's not, is it? Through this one man suffering, the Egyptians, all of them, in fact, we could go further, can't we? Through this one man suffering, the, uh, people from all over the known world, they've had the opportunity to go to Joseph for food and be saved and delivered from this family. Do you see the magnitude of what God has done? He's taken the evil of Joseph's brothers, their greed. He's taken that and used it for such good that the offer of life, the provision of life, is is given to many people from all over the globe. And if you are a Christian in this place this morning, surely you, you cannot but appreciate what God is doing just now from Genesis 50, come on. In this principle of one man suffering, bringing deliverance to a multitude, to the many, is God right now not taking you and turning you to your Savior? Is he not confronting you, bringing you to Jesus that you might look to Jesus right now and ponder him in you? That you might not Think of Jesus in devotion, in love, in praise, and worship. After all, what did Jesus tell you? Mark chapter 10, 45, he says, I came to suffer. Jesus says, I came not to be served. Wait for the ending of it. I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for, for many do you not see it? It's actually in the greater Joseph's experience of suffering. It's in Jesus' experience of being hated and sold for a few pieces of silver. It's in that that we see the goodness of it. It's that where we see the opportunity right now today for many, many people to be delivered if they were just turned to Jesus Christ. Friends, do you, do you right now doubt the goodness of God? Are you struggling with that? Or in here right now, are you doubting the fact that God uses evil? He takes our evil and uses it for good. Is is that a doubt? Do you know what you must do right now? You've got to look at Golgotha. What do you see in the Jews conspiring against Jesus? What do you see in the Romans torturing Jesus and putting him to death? Can I tell you what you see? You see something that will help you to trust in your God. 
You see, at Golgotha, God is a God who takes man's evil and he uses it for good. So we see assurance of genuine forgiveness. We see assurance of divine purpose. And then the last thing this morning, we see assurance of coming deliverance. Assurance of coming uh, deliverance. There is a sense of inevitability here, isn't there? If we have gone through a sermon series where we've looked at the life of Joseph, inevitably, at some point, we would have to consider Joseph's final moments and his death. So as you do that just now, as we're just about to close this sermon series and close the book of Genesis for now, what do you notice in this text about his, his death and his final moments? Hopefully what you notice is how it's stressed that this man was a man who was blessed by God. Does everybody get that? Did you get it in the text that he's blessed by God? So, uh, Bible trivia question. Uh, what age did Joseph die? How old was he when he died? The reason you know the answer, I hope, is because it was mentioned twice. It's emphasized in the text that he lived to, the, to be 110 years old. Why? Because in Egyptian thought at the time, uh, that was the age of blessing. So for the Egyptians, they had this ideal age, and it was the age of living to 110. If you lived 110, you were a man who was blessed, I suppose. It's similar to our three-score uh, year and ten. So Joseph, the idea of him being blessed, he lives long, doesn't he? And he lives to see, you'll notice, his great-grandchildren. And then he lives to a point where he follows his father, doesn't he? And he insists that he is buried up in the promised land of Canaan in an act of faith and faith in his covenant God. So everyone's with me that this is a man who is blessed by God. We have this, but you'll have noticed too, I think, that just as this book closes, Joseph gives one last and final prophecy. Did you see that? There's one last and final prediction. And given that we are ending our sermon series with this prophecy, I know that you'll notice it with me, will you? Okay, so look at verse 24. Let's look at the last thing he says, verse 24. Let's put it up on the screen. So Joseph says to his brothers, after all that they have been through, and he says, I am about to die. But God will visit you. And he will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Now, you might immediately think that you know what he's talking about and to what that prophecy refers. But I want us all as a congregation of God's people to close this book together. You see, very often in churches like ours, what we do is we talk about prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, as though it's a mountain range. Have you heard that idea? 
You know, maybe you understand immediately is the idea that with Old Testament prophecy, if you look at a mountain range from afar off, it just looks like all the mountains are together, doesn't it? But if you get closer to the mountain range, you, you realize there's depth and the mountains are further apart. And we talk about Old Testament prophecy like that. I want you, as we close, I want you to appreciate that Joseph's not just got one mountain in view. Here there are three things that are going on as Joseph ends this book. So, so one, what, what is he talking about in this prophecy? You know, don't you, the first one, the first mountains, the Exodus event. Is that where we were? Is that where you went in your mind? Oh, come on. Surely you did. What does he say? He says to his brothers, God will bring up his people out of this land, Egypt, to the land of promise. So what's going to happen if you turn over your page? What happens? You, you get to the book of Exodus where God does exactly this, doesn't he? God visits his people. And he takes his people up out of the slavery of Egypt, up into that land of promise. You can see it. Obviously, it refers to the Exodus event. Ah. But there's a second mountain. Because here, Joseph is, now wait, he is also referring to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a big claim, isn't it? You're way back, Genesis 50, in this promise here, Joseph is referring to Jesus or, or, or the cross even? How is that possible? Well, if we look at Luke's gospel, chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, you're going to see it. So what do we have here? Do, do you know the transfiguration event? We're familiar with the transfiguration, aren't we? Where is Jesus? He's up a mountain, isn't he? And he's there with Elijah and with Moses. We know the event inside out, don't we? We do. Now, what is interesting is how Moses and Elijah, how they speak of the cross. And what they say about Golgotha. Now, do you see it in front of you? It actually depends on what version of the Bible you're reading. Listen, they say, or they speak of the cross, as either Jesus' departure or... They speak of the cross as Jesus' exodus. The exodus event. Do you see? In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph is speaking of more perhaps than even he knew. That in Genesis 50 in our hands, we have a prophecy of a time where, yes, God would visit his people and visit them in the person of his son. And what would happen at Calvary? That God would bring us up out of the slavery of our sin and to himself. You see the second mountain? But we close this sermon series with a third and a last mountain. Because what I said last week is this. That time... Oh, Christian friend, time and time and time again, though we are adept at forgetting it, time and time again, the Bible makes a promise. And the Bible promises us that one day, Jesus Christ is coming back. We are adept at forgetting it. But the Bible keeps telling us time and time again, one day, like a thief in the night, and yet to the trumpet's blast, Jesus Christ is going to bring the curtain of history down. 
Jesus, your Savior, is going to appear. You will see him, and we will all stand before God. But I'm asking you, how does the Bible speak about that event? And you can say to me, there's a whole raft of ways. It's the second coming, isn't it? It's Christ's return. It's the parousia. All of these ways. But what about 1 Peter chapter 2? Peter speaks of Christ's return and says this. That day will be the day of God's visitation. That day when Christ comes. That truly is the day where God will come visit his people. And so don't you see it? From Joseph's words in Genesis 50, we today are hearing from the very Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he say to you in your doubt, Christian? What does he say? He says, one day God will visit you. And on that day, all by grace, God will bring you up out of this land to that land, that heavenly land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. With that in view, and with our word for the day ringing in our ears, we can close the sermon series, can't we? With the words of the hymn writer. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Let's bow our heads and let's pray.